Chapter Eight of the Mystery of Clumber. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mystery of Clumber by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Eight. Statement of Israel Stakes. Copied and authenticated by the Reverend Matthew Clark, Presbyterian Minister of Stonykirk in Wigtownshire. Mr. Father Gilwest and the minister say that I maun tell all I can about General Heatherstone and his house, but that I maunna say muckle about myself because the readers would not care to hear about me or my affairs. I am nae so sure of that, for the sticks is a family weel kenned and respected on both sides of the border, and there's many in Nisdale and Annandale as would be gay pleased to hear news of the son of Archie Stakes or Ecclefechan. A man in do as I'm told, however, for Mister West's sake, hoping he'll no forget me when I chance to have a fear to ask. Footnote: The old rascal was well paid for his trouble, so he need not have made such a favour of it. J. F. W. I'm no able to write myself because my father sent me out to scare crows instead of sending me to school, but on the other hand, he brought me up in the principles and practice of the real Kirk of the Covenant, for which may the Lord be praised. It was last May twelvemonth that the factor body, Mr. McNeil, came over to me in the street and speared whither I was in want of a place as a coachman and gardener. As it fell out, I chanced to be on the lookout for something of the sort myself at the time, but I was no o'er quick to let him see that I wanted it. You can take it or leave it, says he shop like. It's a good place and as money would be glad of it. But uh, if you want it, you can come up to my office at twilight morn and put your own questions to the gentleman. That was uh, all I could get for him, for he's a close man and a hard one at a bargain, <laughs> which shall profit him little in the next life, though he lay by a store of cellar in this. When the day comes, there'll be a handful of factors on the left hand of the throne, and I shouldn't be surprised if Mr. McNeil found himself among them. Well, on the morning I gaed up to the office, and there I found the factor and a long, thin door man with grey hair and a face as brown and crickled as a walnut. He looked hard at me with a pair of een that glowed like twice spunks, and then he says, says he, "Ye've been born in these parts, I understand." I says I, I never left them neither. Never been out of Scotland, he spears. Twice to Carlisle Fair, says I, for I am a man what loves the truth, and besides I ken that the factor would mind me gain there for a bargain for two stairs and a stirt that he wanted for the stocking of the drumlery farm. I learn from Maister McNeil, says General Heatherstone, for him it was and none other. That you canna write, nah, says I, nor read, nah, says I. It seems to me, says he, turning to the factor, that this is the very man I want. Servants is spoilt nowadays, says he. By over muckle education, I had no doubt stakes that you will suit me well enough. You'll have three pound a month and a fund 
but I shall reserve the right of giving you twenty-four hours' notice at any time. How will that suit ye? It's very different from my last place, says I, discontented like. And the words were true enough. <laughs> For old Farmer Scott only gave me a pound a month and parrots twice a day. <laughs> well, well, sissy, maybe we'll give you a raise if you suit. Meanwhile, here's the handsome shilling that Mr. McNeil tells me it's the custom to give, and I shall expect to see you at Clumber on Monday. When Monday came round, I walked out to Clumber, and a great muckle house it is, where a hundred windows are more, and space enough to hide the way up the parish. As to gardening, there was no garden for me to work at, and the horse was never taken out of the stables for week's end to week's end. I was busy enough for all that, for there was a deal of fencing to be put up, and one thing and another, for by cleaning the knives and brushing the boots and such like jobs as is more fit for an old wife than for a grown man. There was Star beside myself in the kitchen, the cook Eliza and Mary the housemaid, bird benighted beings, both of them. We have wasted all their lives in London, and kind little about the world or the ways of the flesh. I had no muckle to say to them, but they were simple folk who could scarce understand English, and had hardly more regard for their age selves and the tods on the moor. <laughs> when the cook said she did not think muckle of John Knox, and either that she wouldn't give sixpence to hear the discourse of Mr. Donald McSnaw or the true jerk, I kind it was time for me to leave them to a higher judge. There was four in the family, the general, my lady, Mr. Mordaunt, and Miss Gabrielle, and it wasn't long before I found that it wasn't just exactly as it should be. My lady was as thin and as white as a ghost, and many's the time as I've come on her and found her yammering and greeting all by herself. I've watched her walking up and down in the wood where she thought none could see her, and wringing her hands like one demented. There was the young gentleman, too, and his sister. They both seemed to have some trouble in their minds, and the general missed of all, for the others went up one day and down another, and he was aye the same. We had faces dour and sad as a felon when he feels the towel round his neck. I speared all the hussies in the kitchen whether they kenned what was amiss with the family, but the cook, she answered me back that it was not for her to inquire into the affairs of her superiors, and that it was nothing to her, as long as she did her work and had her wages. They were pure, feckless bodies, the two of them, and would scarce give an answer to a civil question, though they could clack load enough when they had a mind. Well, weeks passed into months, and the things grew worse instead of better in the hall. The general, he got mere nervous, and his lady mere melancholy every day, and yet there wasn't any quarrel or bickering between them, for when they'd been together in the breakfast room, I used often to get round and prune the rose tree alongside of the window, so that I could not help hearing a great part of their conversation, though sir against the green. When the young folk were well, they would speak little, and when they had gone, they would 
I talk as if some wayful trail ere a boot to fall upon them, though I could never gather from their words what it was that they were afeard of. I've heard the general say now that once that he was not frightened of death or any danger that he could face and have done with, but that it was the long, weary waiting and the uncertainty that had taken all the strength and the metal out of him. Then my lady would console him and tell him that maybe it wasn't as bad as he thought, and that it would come right in the end. But her cheery words were clean thrown away upon him. As to the young folks, I gained well that they didn't abide in the grounds, and that uh, they were away wherever they got a chance with Mr. Father Gil West to Blackstorm. But the general was too full of his own troubles to ken about it, and it didn't seem to me that it was a part of my duties either as coachman or as gardener to mind the bairns. He should have learnt that if you forbid a lassie and a laddie to do anything, it's just the surest way of bringing it about. The Lord found that out in the garden of paradise, and there's no muckle change between the folk in Eden and the folk in Wigtown. There's anything I haven't spoken about yet, but that should be set down. The general did not share his room with his wife, but slept alone in a chamber at the far end of the house, as distant as possible for everywhere else. This room was a locket when he wasn't in it, and nobody was ever allowed to gang into it. He would make his own bed, and read it up and dust it by himself, but he wouldn't so much as allow one of us to set foot on the passage that led to it. At night he would walk all over the house, and he had lamps hung in every room and corner, so that no part should be dark. Many's a time from my room in a garret I heard his footsteps coming and ganging, coming and ganging, doing one passage and up and other from midnight till cockcraw. It was weary work to lay listening to his clatter and wondering whether he was cleaned aft, or whether maybe he'd learnt pagan and idolatrous tricks out in India, and that his conscience knew was like the worm which gnaweth and dieth not. I had speared for him whether it wouldn't cease him to speak with the holy Donald McSnaw, but it might have been a mistake, and the general was not a man that you cared to make a mistake with. One day I was working in the grass border when he comes up and he says, Did you ever have occasion to fire a pistol, Israel? God sakes, says I, I never had sicken a thing in my hounds in my life. Then you'd best not begin now, says he. Ever man to his own weapon, he says. Now I warrant you could do something with a good crab tree cudgel. I <laughs> could I, I answered blithely, as well as any lad on the border. This is a lonely house, says he, and we might be molested by some rascals. It's way to be ready for whatever may come. Me and you and me some more than Mr. Fothergill West of Branksome, who would come if he was required, ought to be able to show a bald face. What think ye? Deep, sir, I says. Feasting it I better than fetching, but if you'll raise me a pound a month, I'll no shirk my share either. We will quarrel over that, says he, 
and agreed to the extra twelve pound a year as easy as though it were as many barbies. Far be it from me to think evil, but I couldn't help surmising at the time that money that was so lightly parted with was maybe no so very honestly come by. I'm no a curious or a prying mon by nature, but I was sair puzzled in my ain mind to tell why it was that the general walked about at night, and what kept him frae his sleep. Well, and day I was cleaning down the passages when my ain fell on a great muckle heap of curtains and old carpets and sick like things that were piled away in a corner, no very far frae the door of the general's room. Oh, a sudden, a thought came into me head, and I says to myself, Israel, laddie, says I, what's to stop you for hiding behind this very nicht and seeing the old man when he doesn't ken whom an eon is on him? The mere thought on it, the mere simple it appeared, and I made up my mind to put the idea into instant execution. When the nick come round, I told the women folk that I was bare with the joy and I would gang early to my room. I can find when once I got there that there was na chance of any one disturbing me, so I waited a wee while, and then when all was quiet, I slip it off my boots and ran down the other stair until I came to the heap of old clothes, and there I lay down with one eye peeping through a kink, and the rest covered up with a great ragged carpet. There I bided as quiet as a moose until the general passed me on his road to bed, and I was still in the house. My certy, I wouldn't have gang through we again for all the siller in the Union Bank of Dumfries. I cannot think of no without feeling cold all the way down me back. It was just half a layer there in the dead silence. Waiting and waiting, we ne'er a soon to break the monotony, except the heavy ticking on an old clock somewhere down the passage. First I would look down the corridor in the one way, and sign I'd look down in t'other, but it I seemed to me as though there was something coming up frae the side that I wasn't looking at. I had a cold sweat on my brow, and my heart was beating twice to a ilk a tick of the clock, and what feared me most o' all, was that the dust for the curtains, and the things was I getting down into my lungs, and it was uh, all I could do to keep myself from coughing. God's sake! I wonder my hair wasn't grey with all that I went through. I would not dare it again to be made Lord Provost of Glasgow. Well, it may have been twelve o'clock in the morning, or maybe a little more, and I was just thinking that I was not to see anything after all. Uh, and I wasn't very sorry, neither, when all of a sudden a sound came to me ears clear and distinct with the stillness of the nicht. I'd been asked before, no, to describe that sound, but have I found that it's no very easy to get a clear idea on it, though it was unlike any other sound that ever I hearkened to. It was a sharp ringing clang, like what could be caused by flipping the rim of a wine-glass, but it was far higher and thinner than that, and it had in it a, a kind of splash, like the tinkle of a raindrop into a water butt. In my fear I sat up among the carpets, like a puddock among gowan leaves, and I listened with all my ears. 
All was still again now, except for the dull ticking of the distant clock. Suddenly the sound came again, as clear, as really sharp as ever, and this time the general heard it, for I heard him gay a kind of groan, as a tired man might well have been rusted out of his sleep. He got up for his bed, and I could make out a rustling noise, as though he were dressing himself, and presently his footfall as they began to walk up and down in his room. My sakes! It didn't take long for me to drop doon among the carpets again and cover myself o'er. There I lay trembling in every limb, and saying as many prayers as I could mind, with my eyes still peeping through the keyhole, and fixed upon the door of the general's room. I heard the rattle of the handle presently, and the door swung slowly open. There was a lick burning in the room beyond, and I could just catch a glimpse of what seemed to me like a row of swords stuck along the side of the wall, when the general stepped out and shut the door behind him. He was dressed in a dressing-gown, with a red smoking cap on his head, and a pair of slippers with the heels cut off and the toes turned up. For a moment it came into my head that maybe he was walking in his sleep, but as he came toward me, I could see the glint of the lit in his hand, and his face was a-twisting like a man what's in sad distress of mind. When my conscience, it gives me the shakes, no, when I think of his tall figure, and his yellow face coming so solemn and silent down the lang, lone passage. I had my breath and lay close watching him, but just as he came to where I was in, my very heart stood still in my breast, for ting! Loud and clear, within a yard of me came that ring and clanging sound that I had already hearkened to. Where it came from is mere than I can tell, but what was the cause of it? It might have been that the general made it, but I was sair puzzled to tell who, for his arms were both done by his side as he passed me. It came from his direction, certainly, but it appeared to me to come from over his head. But it was sick enough thin, eerie, high-pitched, uncanny kind of sound that it wasn't easy to tell just exactly where it did come from. The general took no heed on, but walked on and was soon out of sight, and I didn't lose a minute in creeping out from my hiding-place and scampering away back to my room, and if the boogies of the Red Sea were traipsing up and down the hail neck through, I would never put my head out again to hear a glimpse of them. I didn't say a word to anybody about what I'd seen, but I made up my mind that I wouldn't stay muckle longer at Clumberha. For upon the month is a good wage, but it is not enough to pay a man for the loss of his peace of mind, and uh, maybe the loss of his soul as well. For when the dale is about, you cannot tell what sort of a trap he may lay for you, and though they say that providence is stronger than him, it's maybe as well no to risk it. It was clear to me that the general and his house were both under some curse, and it was fit that the curse should fall on them that had earned it, and not on a righteous Presbyterian what had ever trod the narrow path. My heart was sir for young Miss Gabriel, for she was a bonny and winsome lassie, uh, but for all of that I felt that my duty was to myself and that I should gang forth, even as Lot ganged out of the wicked cities on the plain. 
the awful cling cling was a digging in my lugs and i could not bear to be alone in the passages for fear of hearing it once again i did not wanted a chance or an excuse to gain their general notice and to gag bank to some place where i could see christian folk and have the kirk within a stone cast to fall back upon but it proved to be ordained that instead of my saying the word it shall come for the general himself it was one day about the beginning of october i was coming out of the stable after gaining its oats to the horse when i seed a great muckle loon come hopping up one leg up the drive more like a big ill-fired craw than a man when i clapped my in on him i thought that maybe this was one of the rascals that the master had been speaking about so without mere ado i fetched out my bit stick with the intention of trying it on the limmer's head he seed me coming toward him and reading my intention from my lock maybe or fra the stick in my hand he pulled out a long knife fra his pocket and swore with the most awful oath that if i didna stand back it'd be the death of me my conscience the words the chill used was enough to make the hair stand straight on your head i wonder he wasn't struck dead where he stood we were still standing opposite each other he with his knife and me with his stick when the general he came up the drive and found us to my surprise he began to talk to the stranger as if he'd kenned him wise days put that knife in your pocket corporal says he your fears have turned your brain blood and wounds says the other it had turned my brain to some purpose with that muckle stick of his if i hadn't drawn my snickersnee you shouldn't keep second an old savage on your premises the master he frowned and looked black at him and as though he didn't relish a vice coming from such a source then turning to me you won't be wanted after today israel he says you have been a good servant and i hae nothing to complain of will you but circumstances have arisen which will cause me to change me arrangements they're good sir says i you can go this evening says he and you shall have an extra month's pay to make up to you for this short notice with that he went into the house followed by the man that he called the corporal and from that day to this i have never clapped in either on the one or the other my money was sent out to me in an envelope and having said a few parting words to the cook and the wench with reference to the wrath to come and the treasure that is richer than rubies i shook the dust of clumber from my feet for air mr fothergill west says i manna express an opinion as to what came about afterwards but mon confined myself to what i saw myself no doubt he has his reasons for this and far be it from me to hint that they are not good ends but i mon say this that what happened didn't surprise me it was just as i expected and so i said to mr donald mcsnaw i've told you about it no and i haven't a, a word to add or to withdraw i'm muckle obliged to master matthew clark for putting it down in writing for me and if there's any wood wish to spare anything more o me i'm well kinned and respected in ecclefechan and master mcneil the factor o wigtown can i tell you where i am to be found 
End of chapter 8